Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to Craig Duncan's instrumental version of Through the Years, a song made famous by Kenny Rogers and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Steve Dorff. With 12 number one hits to his credit, Dorff is a highly respected songwriter, TV and film composer, arranger, and producer. In part three of the show, we'll share the interview from our recent visit to Steve's home here in Southern California. But first, in part one, you'll find out how you can get an autographed copy of Steve's book. And then in part two, a songwriting conversation with a Mother's Day focus. Part one. Well, I don't want to assume too much, but I'm guessing that most of our listeners also know how to read. <laughs> I think a good portion of them likely do. And because of that, we're going to give away a book today. Yeah. A book written by the great Steve Dorff. Yeah, Steve uh, wrote his memoir, which is called I Wrote That One Too, A Life in Songwriting from Willie to Whitney. And uh, we were over at his house to record this interview. And uh, being the obnoxious guy that I am, I was like, hey, is that a box of your books over there, Steve? Can we have one? Will you sign it for one of our listeners? <laughs> and being the gracious guy that Steve is, he said, of course. Yeah. So uh, we've got this, uh, got this book. It's a nice hardback book. It says, Best Always, Steve Dorff, right here in the front. And uh, so we're going to, uh, to, to do a little contest. Yep. And the way we're going to do this is anyone who makes a post on Facebook about this episode and tags us and it will be entered into the running for this book. And then we'll have a little bit of a drawing, kind of a, a raffle that we're going to uh, pick it out. And you may be the one you to might receive be the, the lucky winner. signed copy. Yeah. So uh, go ahead and, and get on that. Make sure you, you get yourself entered. And uh, we will announce the winner in uh, two episodes from now. So that gives you plenty of time. So see, Facebook still is good for something. <laughs> Indeed. And we're not going to steal your data. <laughs> we don't know how. <laughs> I but would. If, if we did, we would. Yeah. yeah, we would. Part two. Hey, well, we've got a holiday coming up soon, and I don't know if we'll be together on that holiday, so I wanted to take a moment just to wish you a happy Mother's Day. <laughs> <laughs> You've always been kind of a mother to me. I hope I've been a, a good mother uh, to you. You've been you. all right. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I am nurturing, you know, yeah. I think. and uh... You hurt me, but I know that it's only for my good. <laughs> <laughs> uh yes there uh there is uh, mother's day coming up very soon so <laughs> gotta go out and uh and, and get that gift for mom yep. let her know how much you uh you appreciate her and uh you know of course we're always looking for ways to uh to tie music back into of anything course. and to celebrate songs and yep. and songwriters so what we decided to do today is paul and i sometimes like to reveal to each other uh, our own our own thoughts yes. uh, on some some topics right here as we're recording so that we can get the genuine reaction. Um, <laughs> so instead of each coming up with the same category list today, we've decided that Paul is gonna to talk about five songs about mothers and then I'm going to talk about 
five songwriters who are mothers. So you want to start? Yeah. All right. I would like to start uh, with a song that I think is going to be uh, a big hit with most of our listening audience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a song by Danzig uh, <laughs> called right. Mother. And the sort of uh, the, the pivotal line in the song to me is, Mother, tell your children not to walk my way. Hmm. And it's a, it's a cautionary tale. It's kind of the, uh, the heavy metal, mamas don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Totally. And if you see a picture of Glenn Danzig, you'll know you wouldn't let your children walk his way anyway. I don't think you need the admonition in the song, but uh, it's appropriate. Nice. So that nice. that's mine. Okay. All right. Uh, why don't you go ahead and do your whole okay. list, and then I'll I'll do mine. Um, so my second one uh, is a song that both you and I were big fans of in high school. Uh, right. The early records of Lenny Kravitz. Oh man. Um, the, particularly the first three, I'd say maybe the first three and a half. Especially albums. the second one. Yeah, with the second album uh, titled Mama Said, hmm. and that's a line from the song Always on the Run, yeah. which was basically kind of like a, uh, a collaboration between Lenny Kravitz and Slash. Awesome record. An incredible song and record, and uh, one that I'll probably go back to and listen today just because I've um, put it back into my head. So that's my second one. I not only like the early Lenny Kravitz records, I like the all the Lenny Kravitz records, even the bad ones. <laughs> and I, I recognize yeah. that there's some bad ones. But I, I don't know. I like I like Lenny. I I don't love the bad ones, but the good ones are good enough to send me back. <laughs> um, so my third mother song is just titled "Mother" mm-hmm. by Pink Floyd. Oh, uh, classic! Um, from the Wall album. Uh, it's it's one of those great Roger Waters tunes. It's about uh, paranoia and politics, and uh, you know, sort of overwhelming motherhood and uh, a lot of the things that that make young men uncomfortable. <laughs> and. The, <laughs> It's it's a song that's been covered, uh, you know, really well by bands like Pearl Jam, and I think Foo Fighters did a cover of it. Um, it's one of the songs that seems to have resonated with a lot of artists. So, uh, "Mother" by Pink Floyd. Um, I'm going to continue to my fourth, which is a, a bit of an outlier compared to these songs, but it's "Mama Said Knock You Out" by LL Cool J. <laughs> um, and I, I'm assuming that the mother in this song is just just one that would like her children to knock people out. Um, that maybe she feels like that's an appropriate way to deal with conflict. And uh, I just, I like having that voice out there in the world. Um, there's enough peace and love, and it's nice to have a mother that will tell you occasionally to knock somebody out. There's enough peace and love. <laughs> I think music has focused uh, just like a little too much on peace and love. And it, it's nice it's nice to see a parental figure saying, just hey, need, just, we, just go hit somebody. We need more violence in society. Yes, we do, nowadays in particular. Um <laughs> And my final one, and I, I don't know who wrote this one, but it's a classic. And it's Mama's Little Baby Loves Shortening, Shortening, I think is, is how it goes. <laughs> and I don't, know, I don't know a baby that doesn't love shortening bread. And so it's, you know, it's just, it's a song that I go back to time and time again, sometimes when I'm down. Yeah. And I just remind myself that, hey, as long as there's shortening bread and mamas and babies, I think we're going to be okay. Well, yeah, yeah. So maybe we should have maybe we should have said four is what you're telling me. Oh wait, that, no, that one counts. I don't know that I have a <laughs> clip for it, but that one counts. If, right. if anyone can find out who wrote that, please let us know because I don't I don't really care to Google it. It's too much work. But to if you Google if you just that. know off the top of your head, <laughs> right. let us know. Right, right. All right. So in keeping with the theme, uh, five songwriters that I'm a fan of who also happen to be mothers. All right. Um, and so I'm going to start out with maybe uh, the the one who um, is the most provocative, and that's mm. Nina Simone. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great writer. I mean, worked well in jazz, in, in pop. Yep. Um, definitely an artist's artist. Yep. Um, and her daughter actually kind of is carrying on her legacy Raven. Uh, to this day. <laughs> Raven Simone. <laughs> Wait, no, I'm sorry. That's not that's not her daughter. <laughs> oh, wasn't Raven Simone the kid from the Cosby show yes. when Rudy got too yes. old and they had to and bring in a new little so kid? Raven. Yeah. She's not Nina Simone's daughter. <laughs> but if if you want to know more actual facts about Nina Simone, there's a great documentary on Netflix called What Happened Miss Simone. Yeah. Uh, which is, everyone should check out. It is really good. Very good. And features her daughter talking about her. Um the next one is uh Ani DeFranco. Oh yeah. Um Ani DeFranco is one of those artists that I really like, and she is so prolific that uh, I can't keep up. Right. So I have probably, well, I'm going to sound like an, an antique guy here, but I have about 15 Ani DeFranco CDs, Jeez. and I'm not sure that that really scratches the surface of her output, mm. but my favorite one is Little Plastic Castles. It's a great album. The song is great. There's so many great songs, and her lyric writing in particular there's a there's a song it's actually not on that album but there's a song she wrote that says just the thought of our bed makes me crumble like the plaster where you punch the wall beside my head Jeez. this is like wow so well constructed yet heavy like you yeah. know but she's she's killer so anita franco is my number two she should keep her children away from that man though <laughs> in, indeed, as a mother indeed. i'm just so next on my list is felice bryant and Felice and Boudreaux Bryant were a songwriting team who wrote a bunch of the uh, Everly Brothers stuff, mm. like Wake Up Little Susie, Bye Bye Love, Love Hurts, All I Have to Do is Dream. Um, they also wrote Rocky Top, uh, fun fact. Um, but Felice Bryant, uh, I know they had one child named Dell who went on to be the head of BMI, so kind of carrying on the family legacy by representing and protecting songwriters. And I kind of hear like a motherhood thread in those Everly Brothers titles. You've got, you know, Love Hurts. That <laughs> right. sounds like, you know, a, a labor experience. And then <laughs> Wake Up Little Susie and All Time I Have to Do school. is Dream. Oh, it's also like, you know, parents lose a lot of sleep. So That's true. That's true. I hear the inspiration there. Yeah, love it. Um, all right. So next on my list, uh, of, of my five is, um, Carol King. Mm. And, uh, I mean, Carol King is killer. There's only two, actually Rolling Stone did a list of the hundred greatest songwriters of all time, uh, a year or so ago. And in the top 10, there's only two women. Hmm. Uh, one is Carol King and one is Joni Mitchell. Wow. Um, both also happen to be mothers. That's rare. Era. Joni Mitchell, um, had a child who was, uh, adopted when she was born, and then so they were, you know, she didn't know who her daughter was, and they mm. actually reunited wow. years later, which is a very interesting story. But I'm going with Carol King of of the two. Carol King is my 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 more favorite of those two writers. Yeah. Controversial statement, perhaps, but uh, that's what it is. Um, so yeah, Carol King, great great writer, and uh, well, I don't know if she's a great mother or not. I, she's not my mom, <laughs> but she's a great writer. So you kind of got two in with that one. That's. A little unfair, but go ahead. You saw what I did there. You saw that I cheated. All right. And then so finally, uh, songwriter who is also a mother, Loretta Lynn. Mm. And Loretta Lynn, of course, has been a guest on this very podcast. So a quick shout out to all the moms who have been guests on Songcraft. Claire Lynch, Natalie Hemby, Pam Shane, Loretta Lynn, Marla Cannon-Goodman, Wanda Jackson, Shelley Pikin, Laurie McKenna, Melissa Manchester, 
happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there and to all the people who have a mom, which includes you who are listening yep. right now. So to celebrate Mother's Day, you can go and uh, and listen to some of those past episodes of Songcraft. Make yourself a cool Spotify playlist of some of these uh, women. And um, don't forget, it's coming up soon. So uh, this is also your friendly public service announcement to, to get a gift for your mom. You forgot to mention Mama Cass. It was too obvious. <laughs> Part 3 Steve Dorff's songs have been recorded by hundreds of artists, earning him nominations for six Emmy Awards and three Grammys. His first major success came with the soundtrack for the Clint Eastwood film Every Which Way But Loose, which yielded three number one Billboard singles, including the title song. Similarly successful soundtrack albums would follow, such as Bronco Billy, which earned him number one hits with Cowboys and Clowns for Ronnie Millsap, and Barroom Buddies, a duet for Eastwood and Merle Haggard. Any Which Way You Can, which spawned a top ten hit of the same title for Glenn Campbell, and Pure Country, which earned George Strait two number one hits, I Cross My Heart and Heartland. In total, Dorf has written nine number one country hits from motion pictures, more than any other songwriter in history. In addition to his soundtrack success, Dorf has written number one hits including I Just Fall in Love Again for Anne Murray, Through the Years for Kenny Rogers, Don't Underestimate My Love for You for Lee Greenwood, Hypnotize the Moon for Clay Walker, and The Man in Love with You for George Strait. Other artists who've recorded his songs include Barbara Streisand, The Carpenters, Celine Dion, Cher, Dolly Parton, Dusty Springfield, Garth Brooks, George Jones, Gladys Knight, Jackie Wilson, Kenny Loggins, Randy Travis, Ray Charles, Reba McIntyre, Roy Rogers, Ringo Starr, Smokey Robinson, Whitney Houston, and Willie Nelson. In addition to his songwriting, Dorf has scored countless films and TV shows, including Spencer for Hire, Murphy Brown, The Singing Bee, Just the Ten of Us, Murder, She Wrote, Major Dad, Reba, and Growing Pains, for which he composed the hit theme song, As Long As We Got Each Other. In 2017, he published his memoir, I Wrote That One Too, A Life in Songwriting from Willie to Whitney, and he's a 2018 inductee into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Steve, welcome to Songcraft. Nice to be here. Thanks. Thanks for uh, letting us come over to your home. And uh, we're still reeling from all the uh, golden platinum records here on the <laughs> wall. It was uh, very impressive. Thank you. Um, Thank you. <laughs> but you you grew up in, in Queens, New York, and um, have recently written uh, your autobiography, which is is just came out this year. Um and I was reading that the other day, and I was really struck by your description of hearing music, even as a, as a young child, and experiencing music as what you described as, as shapes of color. And I've, I've heard that before from a very small number of people. It's certainly not, you know, the typical description of, you know, music that one usually hears. Can you elaborate a bit on that uh, experience and and, and what you mean by that? Sure, sure. It, it, it's uh, known commonly as synesthesia. Hmm. Um, I did not know that, of course, when, when I was three and four years old, listening to music and closing my eyes and seeing these lava lamp type bubbles, as I call them. Yeah. Um, I just assumed everybody did when they heard music. Hmm. Um, uh, it was about uh, three years ago, uh, I was having dinner with a psychologist friend of mine, and uh, and we were talking about it. We were yeah. talking about my beginnings and everything, and, and he said, oh, you, you experienced synesthesia. I said, am I going to die? <laughs> and, um, he, he, and he explained to me what it was. It's a, it's a cross-breeding of, of the senses. Some hmm. people can 
drink coffee and uh, all of a sudden feel something. Huh. Uh, they can, or you can, they can smell something and all of a sudden they'll see a color. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's what music was. And it rep- the, uh, what I was hearing represented uh, the notes or the sound in, in colors and these bubbles, which uh, um, to this day, I still, wow. still can conjure them up. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Does it happen whether you're listening to something that's good and pleasant versus a song you're like, this is terrible, but I still see a, a color, or is it only when something kind of it kind of moves you maybe emotionally and hits you in a positive way? Um, you know, that's a really good question. I've I've never really thought about that. I, I uh, it's it, usually if I if it's if I'm listening to something that I don't like, I turn it off quick enough <laughs> so I don't have to experience that. I don't want to um, know what color this yeah, is. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, it only happens when I close my eyes. Interesting. Um, uh, and so. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, that's a good question. I, mm. Next time I hear something really horrible, I'll, I'll force myself <laughs> to listen. Struggle just to through see, it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you, you talk about in your book about how you were influenced by the show tunes of Frank Lesser, a love for orchestral music, and of course the Beatles. Um, you eventually started writing songs of your own and made your first demo recording at the age of 16 for a song called Move On. Um, talk about how that opportunity came about. I had an older sister who uh, worked in an advertising agency. She was a producer. And she heard a couple of my songs and said, you know, we need to play these for, for, for you know, some people. And I have this friend who runs a, a jingle house, mm-hmm. you know, that supplies music for commercials. Let me see if I can have him listen to some of your things. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know what a demo was, so I went down and met with this man Steve Kagan was his name and I played him some things on the piano that I'd written and he said uh, you know I have uh, a sit my sister-in-law is about your age and um, she's a great singer um, maybe we can do a demo where uh, I'll play the piano I'll play your song we'll have Melissa sing it and uh, you'll have your first demo, and it was Melissa Manchester. <laughs> wow! We were both we were both sixteen, and wow. and that's how wow. it happened. She is a good singer. He was <laughs> she was pretty good for a first shot out yeah. of the out yeah. of the barrel. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I believe that you were still sixteen when you signed your first music publishing deal and got your first cut, which was an instrumental record called Infinity Blue by Al Kaiola and his orchestra. Tell us how you were able to get that kind of opportunity at such a young age. Well. Um, I just knocked on doors, any door I could. You know, I went to the Brill Building, but I was about 10 years too late to get in there. Um, everybody had moved out. There were a bunch of dentists in there. And, wow. um, but uh, Herb Bernstein was was a producer-arranger that I loved to listen to his records. He did The Tokens. He did uh, The Four Seasons. Mm. He did Lauren Nero. Um, and uh, so I knocked on his door one day oh. at his office and went in, played some songs him and he signed me to my first publishing deal wow. uh, and one of the artists he was doing a record with was Al Kaola and his orchestra who Al Kaola was this famous session guitar player in New York who had a big hit with the theme from the Magnificent Seven mm. at the uh, time yeah. on United Artists Records and um, he Herb said write, write an instrumental and I'll cut it on Al 
So I did, <laughs> and uh, that's how how that happened. I mean, you had ambition already. I mean, you're you're knocking on doors. You're seeking out the Brill Building. Driven. Wow. Always. Yeah. Um, it's one thing to write a great song. It's the other half of the equation is knowing what to do with it when yeah. you have it. Mm. And um, and I've always had this don't take no for an answer uh, attitude. Yeah. Uh, not mean spirited, but. You know, well, I'm sorry if you, if you don't like this. If it's not right for you, I'll find the right person for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you went to uh, college at the University of Georgia, and during those years, signed uh, another publishing deal with Bill Lowry, who was, you know, a legendary music publisher in Atlanta. Um, and of course, you were signed there as a songwriter. But I understand that you also kind of got the opportunity to begin doing string arrangements and and be the in the production. studio a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you were not a a music major. So how did you educate yourself on even how to begin to write string arrangements. Yeah. um, So the real challenge was, okay, I'm hearing this stuff. How do I, how do I have other people hear what I'm hearing? Mm. And um, Uh. I heard it before I went to the piano. So for me, it was just picking out what I was hearing as opposed to just sitting at the piano and plunking and trying to come up with something. Mm. Um, So I went to the library and read just about every book I could on, on instruments of the orchestra. Wow. Uh, I just wanted to know what the range was. And I made a lot of mistakes, believe me. The, those first string arrangements that I actually did, <laughs> they were written all wrong. Um, <laughs> I had to end up singing the parts to the different players. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, it was a painstaking development. Uh, yeah. But um, I think inherently I knew what I was doing. And yeah, so it yeah. was... Uh, uh, going to school as I went along. Yeah. Uh, my whole career's kind of been like that. While you were still in college, Jackie Wilson recorded a couple of your songs on his This Love Is Real album, uh, which were Where There Is Love and Love Changed Her Face. Something wonderful to pure disgrace, and so you're gone, and I'm alone to face each new day with the thought that you're so far from home. My uh, father in law at the time was uh, connected to a man named Nat Tarnapal who was. CEO of Brunswick Records. Yeah. And uh, I met Nat and he invited me to send some songs to him and uh, uh which uh which I did and lo and behold um I got this call one day uh saying that Jackie Wilson was going to cut <laughs> two of the songs. I, I I was just blown away. I yeah. think my sister who was older 10 years older than me was more excited than I was cuz I really wasn't a, I didn't know really who Jackie Wilson was. Wow. And certainly the songs I wrote at that time were not Jackie Wilson or R&B songs, <laughs> right, you know. Right. So it was all very kind of surreal. Sure. Um, but I did, uh, through that association, I made a record deal for my band Cotton, mm. uh, who I was producing. And we ended up going to the Brunswick Studios in Chicago to do some work and mix up mm. there. Um 
and uh, so while I was mixing one day, uh, a fella came in to my studio from a studio down the hall. He had a big afro. Right. His name was Eugene Record, <laughs> which I thought was perfect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, perfect. And also, I thought he was putting me on. But, um, uh, and he said, "Hey, I, I, you know, who played the piano on this thing you're doing? It's really cool." And I said, "I said, well, it's just me messing around, you know, yeah. just pretty straight ahead four chord thing." And he said, "Would you, when you get a minute, can you come uh, next door? I'm working on a thing. Maybe you can uh, uh, put something down for me." And uh, so I went over to the studio, and uh, Eugene was the lead singer of a band called the Shy Lights, and uh, <laughs> they were doing uh, they were doing some stuff. And uh, he had this track he played me, and uh, uh, he said, "You think you could go in and kind of emulate what you did on that other song I, I heard, and maybe play something on this?" And I said, "Sure." And I listened to it a few times. It was basically a three chord progression, and went in just started fooling around and uh he said that's perfect don't change a thing and <laughs> and it was oh girl find commercial success in 1974 when Dorsey Burnett's recording of It Happens Every Time became your first Billboard charting single, and that was followed by Roy Rogers' recording of Hoppy, Gene, and Me, which reached number 15 on the country chart and became your first hit. Um, both songs were co-written with a lyricist named Milton Brown, and that's a name that we see frequently um, you know, among the collaborators in your song catalog. Talk about how you and Milton first connected and started working together. Milton is just so talented with words. Uh, we met through Bill Lowry. Um, I was writing um, cool melodies, but horrible lyrics. <laughs> and uh, the the one of the professional managers there um, came to me one day and he said, Steve, have you ever considered collaboration, writing with someone else? And I said, not really. I said, why? He said, well, your lyrics are just, you know, they're not making it. And I, I have a guy who's writing amazing lyrics mm -hmm. who can't write a tune in a bucket. <laughs> so maybe you guys should get together and, and maybe yeah. try one. And I said, okay, well, have him send me something. And uh, we talked on the phone. Milton sent me uh, five lyrics because he always liked to write lyric first. And I was just blown away as mm. i read the lyrics i was hearing the melodies before i ever got to the piano wow he his it wasn't they weren't poems mm. they were very music yeah there was musicality in the lyric w without him even maybe realizing it there right. was great form to it mm. it was verse verse chorus verse pretty much um it didn't take much. The, the melodies just kind of screamed off the page at me. Well, by the mid-70s, you were living in Los Angeles and writing for Snuff Garrett's company, which would become a platform for your massive success as a writer. But you were building a career in that decade, and that included a top 20 country hit for Barbara Fairchild with Let Me Love You Once Before You Go. Let me love you once before you go Your eyes keep 
that's a song that was also recorded by Dusty Springfield. And I understand she put you through quite an experience when it came to recording her vocals. She, uh, she threw a chair at me. All in a day's work. We were about 12 hours in uh, to wow. doing a vocal. And, uh, but I have to say, one brilliant take after another. Mm. So my engineer and I kept looking at each other and saying, Dusty, this is, this is perfect. Wow. And uh, she said, it'll be done when, when I say it's done. And um, just agitated and had rules, you know, don't yeah. talk to me, you know, the headphones certain way. Um, no one comes in the control room. I don't want to see anybody. I want the lights off. Just... You know, yeah. just her, and yeah. <laughs> um, but wow, what a what an what an artist, and and, and what a blessing. Uh, you know, Dusty's recorded five of my songs oh. over the years. And I think that's probably what I'm most proud of in, mm. in, 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 of my career is the is the um, uh, the diversity mm. of of all of the artists that, yeah. that have recorded my songs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Dusty is one of the the many artists who recorded I Just Fall in Love Again. And that's a song that was actually recorded a few times before it found just the right artist and and just the right moment to become Song of the Year at the Juno Awards, which Mm -hmm. for those who aren't familiar is basically the the Grammys of Canada. Um, Talk about the journey that that song went through on the way to kind of finding its its proper success. Yeah, well, uh, it took, it was a miracle that that song ever got written. Um, hmm. Larry Herbstritt and I uh, struggled with the lyric to that song for a long time, and yeah. it just never never was making it. I knew we had a great melody. Um, so I asked uh, a good friend of mine, Gloria Skleroff, to come in and uh, listen to it. And she said, oh, no, let me write the lyric. So she did. And then the Carpenters recorded it. Karen did an amazing version of it. Um, was not a single. Mm-hmm. Came out on their album. Um, was great. Yeah. Um, I was thrilled. Um, Dusty recorded it. She'd heard Karen's version. Loved it. Didn't put it out as a single. Right. And then Ann Murray, um, who worshipped Dusty, hmm. uh, heard Dusty's version and... Uh, Jim Ed Norman called me from Toronto and said, "You know, we're gonna we're gonna cut this song, and uh, probably won't be a single for Ann either." But uh, uh, and they did, and it did become a single, and it became Song of the Year and Record yeah. of the Year, and number Canada. one hit. Yeah, take a little side trip here called uh steve dorf goes to the movies uh we're getting into (laughs) we're getting we're getting into a very important era in in your career um shortly before ann murray's success with i just fall in love again you had your very first number one country hit with every which way but loose which was recorded by eddie rabbit in 1978 also was a top 40 pop hit and the song of course was the title song to the clint eastwood film of the same name Every which way but loose you turn me Every which way but loose 
I was getting ready to leave my office. Uh, it was about five, five o'clock uh, one evening, and uh, Snuff Garrett, the producer, came came into the office. He was a bit uh, crazed, and he said. <laughs> um, I need you and Milton to try to write a song called uh, Every Which Way But Loose. And I said, huh? <laughs> um, uh, he explained that uh, it was for a movie that Clint Eastwood had. The song that he had, had uh, he decided against, and mm. they threw it out. Um, what I didn't realize was that knowing Snuff now, and, you know, he probably called four or five different people to cover his back and say, and say, and, and had five songs called Every Which Way But Was Written. So I kind of had a feeling this was something that had to be done yesterday. Yeah. So I went home and I called Milton. It was about eight o'clock when he got back to me, uh, LA time. So it was about 10 o'clock Mobile, Alabama time. And, um, I told him what we needed and he said, well, uh, I'm going to bed. Let's let's deal with it tomorrow. And I said, no, let's deal with it now because I have a hunch this could be something cool. Yeah. And uh, so Milton and I wrote the song over the phone, and uh, <laughs> awesome. in about in about thirty forty minutes, Milton knew instinctively what every which way but loose. He he said it's an old Southern phrase. I'm going to love you. I'm going to turn you every which way but loose. <laughs> and I said okay. And he started writing the lyric as we were talking about it, and I just started plunking away. And we had the song in about thirty forty forty five minutes. Yeah. Um, I played it over and over after we got off the phone, uh, just to refine it a little bit. Went in the next morning, played it for Snuff. He called Clint, and we went over to Warner's, and I met Clint and played it on the piano for him uh, twice. And um, he said, "That's the song," and uh, and really the the start of uh, a great association between Clint Eastwood and myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that soundtrack for Every Which Way But Loose was a big success and, and spawned additional three, hit three singles. Three or four number ones, I, yeah. I believe. I'll that. Wake You Up When I Get Home, top five country hit for Charlie Rich. No, it was one number one. Was it? In Cashbox, yeah. All right. Amazing. So, yeah, uh, Coca-Cola Cowboy, number one for, mm-hmm. for Mel. And these are all songs, by the way, that you wrote. Right. Um, so, obviously, there was, you know, the, this huge moment of major country chart success all from this one project but another aspect of it is that you're also now becoming a film score guy mm-hmm. i mean that was uh, a new thing for you as well talk about kind of that the opening of that new chapter well clint um gave me my shot so that's what i really wanted to do yeah and that's why i moved to los angeles um when when i played clint Every Which Way But Loose, uh, about two days later, he had called me and he said, um, can you come in? And I went in and I thought, uh-oh, what's wrong? What did I do? <laughs> and uh, he said, look, he said, I'd, I want to weave this song throughout the movie, but instrumentally, um, can you do that? <laughs> and I said, yeah. <laughs> of course yeah, of course yeah um of, yeah uh, i just you know i knew that if i had said 
I don't know or no, <laughs> that was my shot. So yeah. I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. Yeah. Love to love to do it. And um, that was my first uh, wow. big and movie. Not a lot of people know that Clint has a great musical sensibility. He sure does. Himself. I mean, mm-hmm. as, he's a yeah. pianist and a, mm-hmm. and a composer himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I did five movies with Clint and yeah. um, it was a great, great run. And I learned a lot. Uh, from him, just being around him. Uh, you know, of, one of the films in that string was Bronco Billy. Mm-hmm. Um, got you two more number one country hits as mm-hmm. a songwriter with Ronnie Millsaps, Cowboys and Clowns, and Merle Haggard and Clint did a duet on Barroom Buddies. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about that project. That sounds like a fun one. Clint wanted to uh, sing, or maybe it was Snuff's idea. I can't really remember. But yeah. uh, If they were together at the time of recording, that sounds like the manliest vocal booth. <laughs> In the history of vocal booths. Well, I think we did Merle, Merle's vocal, and then Clint came back in a day later and did uh, did his All overdub. Right. So it, it's, it's just too much manly to, to get <laughs> Too much. Right. Um, well, another big soundtrack that was quite successful for you was uh, Any Which Way You Can, which, of course, was Clint Eastwood's mm-hmm. sequel to Any Which Way But Loose. Mm-hmm. And the title song of that was a top 10 country hit for Glenn Campbell. Right. Um, but you also hit the charts with another Clint Eastwood duet, this time with Ray Charles on a song called Beers to You. Um, and just Did we of, hit the charts with that? Number 55, country. Really? Yeah. See, yeah. I, I thought that was one of the worst records I'd ever been associated with. Um, Did you get the chance to actually work with oh, yeah. Ray? I, I, I produced the record wow. um, and uh, did the arrangement and wrote the song, Beers yeah. to You. And uh, But it was one of those forced... It was one of those four songs. Clint, uh, Snuff would, uh, you know, Snuff would come in with sometimes some goofy ideas and uh, and say, you know, I need a song called "Beers to You," and uh, I'd go, Ugh. <laughs> and so you know, uh, I wrote it a little bit begrudgingly, and right. um, uh, and it it wasn't very good. Yeah, uh, the greatest. Yeah. The greatest part about that record was getting to work with Ray Charles. Yeah. (laughs) Worth it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'll write a not great song if I can work with Ray Charles. (laughs) Um, You know, the biggest hit that emerged from that soundtrack was You're the Reason God Made Oklahoma uh, by David Frizzell and Shelley West. And that's not a song that you wrote, but you did co-produce it and then went on to produce their big hits, including a couple of top 10 singles that you did write, Another Honky Tonk Night on Broadway, and Where Are You Spending Your Nights These Days. Mm-hmm. Is there a sense in which, uh, I know there's a different sense of ownership in having written a song versus having produced a song. When, when you go back and listen, though, you know, it, it, how do you kind of view those experiences you know, as, as a producer versus having been a writer on a song. Yeah, it's uh, I, I wear two hats and and when I when I'm uh, when I have the producer hat on, I really couldn't care less if Count Dracula wrote wrote the hit. <laughs> um a hit, a hit is a hit is a hit song. I love great songs and uh so it's it's two different yeah. two distinct very distinct different jobs. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, one of the absolute uh classic standards from your songwriting catalog is through the years which you wrote with marty panzer and which kenny rogers turned into a massive hit in 1981 I've loved 
And I'm so glad I stayed right here with you. First of all, again, a song that um, was passed over by several acts mm. and then recorded by a couple before Lionel Richie heard it and uh, played it for Kenny one day. And uh, but yeah, w uh, Marty and I went down to the studio to hear hear the hear the uh, record, and uh, Kenny sang the opening line of the song wrong. And Marty went nuts. Marty hmm. went ballistic. He, you know, he doesn't like a comma changed, <laughs> let alone, uh, you know, um, the opening line of the song as we wrote it is, I can't remember when you weren't there, when I ever cared for anyone but you. Kenny sang, I can't remember when you weren't there, when I didn't care for anyone but you. If you really look at it, it's a double negative and it makes no sense. Right. <laughs> um, Marty told Kenny that in so many words. <laughs> Kenny looked at him, closed his eyes for a second, thought, thought about it for what seemed like an hour, but it was probably only 10 seconds. He opened his eyes, looked at Marty, and he said, I like my way better. <laughs> um, I dragged Marty out of there by his hair, um, saying, uh, you know, my kids need new shoes. This yeah. is, this is yeah. arguably the biggest artist on the planet. Yeah. Uh, we need this record. Right. Um, yeah, we didn't know if it was going to make the record. It, wow. it did make the album. It was the Share Your Love album. It was the fourth single released. Wow. It was the B-side of a song called... I can't even remember. It was terrible. Uh, <laughs> uh, they put this record out that was just, I, I didn't like it. And uh, we were on the B-side and the radio station started playing it. And um, wow. wham. Man, it's amazing. Yeah, it just went over 5 million per performances. At yeah. Wow. AMI, so. Good thing you dragged Marty out of there before he said yes. more. Good thing. <laughs> yes. Has he ever thanked you for that? <laughs> No, but, it, you know, and the truth is every time he hears the record, he cringes. Still drives nuts. Um, but, um, you know what? It didn't, it didn't keep it from, uh, from being a, wow. a big yeah. hit that it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you make a great point in your book that successful songwriters shouldn't get too fixated on lesser artists or lesser known artists recording mm -hmm. their songs. Mm -hmm. um, because you never know where that person's career might be going. Um, and you really illustrate the point with one of your songs called Take Good Care of My Heart. Tell us about that. Well, um, <laughs> that was a song that I always really loved. Uh, Pete McCann and I wrote that. Um, Take Good Care of My Heart was just one of those songs that came out of a writing session. Did a, did a really cool demo and one day um, got a call from Jermaine Jackson who I'd worked with on a previous album and he was doing his first album for uh, Arista, Clive mm. Davis, and he said, I need a great duet, kind of like that song that you and I did several years ago. And I said, great. I, I, I said, uh, let me let me put something together. He says, well, I need it now. I, I'm <laughs> recording tonight. Jeez. I said, oh, okay. Well, in that case, I've got the perfect song. And I just, <laughs> I stuck about five cassettes in my pocket and went, drove over to the studio. He invited me to come over and jumped in the car. And I literally pulled the 
the first song out. I didn't know what it was. (laughs) Popped it in the car thing. We started listening to it, and he started singing along with the chorus, and he said, that's it. That's the song. (laughs) So I'm thinking, okay, got to be, it's Arista, it's Clive, it's got to be Dion, and it's got to be, or or Aretha. Please, please be Aretha. (laughs) And uh, so I said to Jermaine, I said, "Um, Aretha? He said, no, no. I said, Dion? No, no. It's a new artist from New Jersey. I said, oh, I'm a little disappointed. She sings really good, though. You know, I think you'll be really happy. Her name's Whitney Houston. And uh, I was actually depressed. And, um, you know, 25 million, 27 million records later. I've seen. You know, as we look at your output in the mid '80s, it's a little dizzying. I mean, the the, the number of hits and Murray's recording of "I Don't Think I'm Ready for You," um, Lee Greenwood's "Don't Underestimate My Love for You," um, Gary Morris "Lasso the Moon." I mean, it's just sort of like this this hot streak. There's all this activity going on on the country and pop charts, but you were also hugely successful scoring TV shows and movies. And that really kicked into high gear in the eighties. There was Spencer for hire, murder. She wrote Murphy Brown, major dad, just the 10 of us, uncle buck, Reba (laughs) growing pains. I mean, it's like every show and this is our, I mean, growing pains was like, this is our, our (laughs) era, you know? So not only is that a, a memorable, um, TV theme from from my generation, but it also became a top ten single on Billboard's Adult Contemporary chart, credited to Steve Dorff and friends. I got a call from the head of uh, music for Warner television and he said uh you know i've got this uh i've got this sitcom Mm -hmm. for abc that uh they want a really cool theme song um do you want to take a meeting with the producers and i did and uh as often happens especially in television there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen yeah and they all had different ideas of what the song should be yeah um I watched the pilot. I didn't really think too much of it. I thought it was kind of, well, mindless sitcom. It's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Cute kids. So I went home and uh, after the, the meeting and uh, John Bettis and I were getting, we were getting together to finish a song that we were really excited about that yeah. the, the previous weeks that we wanted to finish. And I said, hey, John, before we dive into that, I got to knock out this quick theme song. Yeah. Uh, for this TV show. And he said, what is it? And I told him basically what, what the story was. And he started writing down on his pad, on this yellow pad. So you'd <laughs> think he was writing the Pledge of Allegiance. And he stuck it in front of me. All right. And um, just from the 25 words or less uh, description I gave him of, of what I had seen. Mm-hmm. And it was as long as we got each other. And <laughs> uh, 
I think we wrote it in 15 minutes. Wow. And because uh, we wanted to write this other song, which never went anywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, in 15 minutes, you guys still got like a, a key change into the chorus, too. Like, it's like there's. <laughs> yeah. This is ready to begin. Like, ah, oh, sunroof opens. So you guys are musicians, too, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, guys, you guys are really. I'm impressed. Your questions uh. are amazing. You're, you know more about me than I do. It's, uh, you know, you know the chart positions. I mean, this is like freaking me out. Yeah. Uh, crack researcher over here. No, it's great. Um, you know, not only was the TV work keeping you busy, but you were continuing to do quite a bit of film scoring um, with some particularly notable highlights in the 90s. And I want to ask you about You Never Know, which was the end credit song for the John Hughes film Curly Sue. And anyone who comes into this room will see a couple Hofner basses in here mm-hmm. and, and know that you're a Beatles fan. And that song gave you a chance to work with a childhood hero. Boy, it sure did. Um, uh, I, I owe a lot of my success at, at Warner Pictures to, to a guy named Gary Lamell, mm. who was um, the president of uh, music for the studio. So I did get a call at the 11th hour um, for a picture called Curly Sue, John Hughes' last movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and John was looking for uh, a song that uh, for the end credits. And Gary said, uh, why don't you and Bettis take a shot at it? And uh, we read the script, or John read the script, wrote a great <laughs> lyric called You Never Know. And um, we wrote the song, and uh, I took a meeting with Gary and... Uh, and John Hughes a week later. John had heard the demo and loved the song. And at the meeting, uh, John Hughes listened and he said, I hear Ringo Starr on this. <laughs> and my my initial reaction was, well, yeah, sure, but how are we going to get right. him? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's impossible, <laughs> you know. Um, Gary Lamel said, let me make a call. <laughs> and I think it was 24 hours later, Gary called me and he said... Uh, Get ready, you're going to produce Ringo. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And um, it was the greatest thrill of my career. Yeah, um, yeah. Trying to be really cool the first time I met him. I go, look, Ringo, you know, Steve, don't, you know, don't don't be an idiot here. (laughs) When you meet him, just be cool. You know, act like you're on his level and you're producing. You know, so act like it. Well, here I come walking up the, uh, this little walkway at uh, Conway Studios in Hollywood. And uh, I see this guy leaning against the wall, smoking a cigarette. And I'm thinking to myself, shit, that looks like Ringo. (laughs) Shit, it is Ringo. (laughs) What am I going to say? What am I going to say? My brain is like going 100 miles an hour. (laughs) And I walk up to him and I reach out my hand. And like a stupid little fanboy, I go... Uh, hi Ringo. I, I, you probably don't hear this very often, but you're the reason I got into the business. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, first time today. <laughs> That's great. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, funny. Um, well, another massive score and soundtrack you worked on was for the George Strait film Pure Country, which sold six million copies, earned you two number one singles with Heartland and I Cross My Heart. I cross my heart and promise to give all I've got to give 
CMT named I Cross My Heart among their top 10 greatest country love songs ever written. Uh, but I understand that it wasn't necessarily actually written as a, a country song, and it actually is another one of those that had kind of been around a little while and been right. through some some iterations. Um, talk about how, how that song kind of came about. Uh, Eric Kaz and I wrote uh, I Cross My Heart thinking it was kind of a an R&B boys to men hmm. vibey thing. Yeah. And still to this day, when I play it, I'm hearing boys to men, right? you know, <laughs> and um, uh, we did a demo and nobody really saluted. Nobody really, uh, you know, nice song, Steve. Eh. Mm-hmm. Um, shoulder shrug, you know. So uh, I went back in. I, I demoed it with uh, with a woman, girl singer, and sounded good. And uh, Bette Midler recorded it. Hmm. Um not not great record never came out she wasn't a great marriage of a vocal to a song yeah uh, um production was kind of over overdone it just was it just wasn't the right record and to her credit i think she knew it and that's why she canned it and never came out on the album yeah um played that song for everybody i knew for eight years hmm. maybe maybe a little longer until i got a chance to uh i was asked to write a song for uh pure country for this yeah. great spot at the end of the movie love song um i told the director i said you know i have a song that i, ca- I can't write a better song for this moment than the song i have and yeah. uh, it was i crossed my heart mm. and uh, he loved it we played it for george and george kind of looked at me and he said eh <laughs> it's all right. It's not one of your best, you know. <laughs> um, we uh, we recorded it, and it became this massive hit. I yeah. think it's because it was so out of the box for George. Mm. Um, it was such a departure for him. Yeah. Uh, again, the 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 perfect record, the right mm. voice for the right song, for the right arrangement, yeah. for the right time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, that's another story of you kind of. Showing a, a, a stubborn commitment to a song, mm-hmm. knowing that the song has value. Absolutely. You know, it, it happened again with the, the Man in Love with You, which is another top five for George. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens know, for just about for every song I've ever written. <laughs> um, it's I mean, a struggle. Every that, every one is a struggle. And I I don't feel like every writer has that kind of understanding of what treasures might exist in their back catalog. Um, why do you think some writers don't notice that? And and what is it about you? And understanding your catalog that well, of sort of knowing how to when to pull one out, and and remembering these songs, and knowing that they're going to be pertinent. Well, that that's a really good question, and I think part of it goes to the fact that I never wrote 250 songs a year like a lot of the writers do today, mm-hmm. especially in Nashville. Yeah. Their uh, the shelf life of a song might be a week or mm-hmm. two weeks to publishers or to writers. They want it. They're always thinking, well, I've got to write something tomorrow. And, yeah. You know, if this didn't cut, get cut last week, then eh, let's move on. I never prescribed to that. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, um, if I wrote 50 songs a year, that was a huge year. I mean, if yeah. I write 12 
songs a year now, um, that's a big quota for me. Yeah. Uh, I write what I what um, what I know, yeah. and uh, and sometimes I'm not feeling what I know, you know, and sometimes I'm not hearing it, mm. and so uh, uh, to to more specifically answer your question. Um, I go to my back catalog because I know there are songs in there that that I truly believe are great yeah. and that that deserve to be hits. And for some reason or another, uh, they just haven't found their home yet. Yeah. Like I crossed my heart, took eight years to find George. Yeah. And through the years, took three or four years to find Kenny. Wow. Well, you know, you found success with a couple of country hits with Clay Walker in the mid-90s, including Hypnotize the Moon, which hit number two on the Billboard country chart in 1996. You better run for cover, you better hide your heart, cause once you start to love her, you know you'll never stop. She shines like a diamond when she walks into a room, she could charm the stars, hypnotize the moon. I understand that you thought for a long time that that song should be recorded by another artist or was going to be recorded by another artist. It Tell was. It was on hold for uh, uh, Ty Herndon wow. for over a year. <laughs> and they told me it was going to be uh, not only going to be on the album, but probably be his first or second single. <laughs> and, and so when the album came out, I sent my assistant down to the record store to pick up the CD and she brought it back and I'm looking at it looking for my song and I'm, I keep looking at it I keep changing my glasses going wait a minute where, where, there's 12 songs on this album where is my song yeah. what wasn't on there wow so uh, and then they wanted to hold it for the next album you're not gonna thanks pitch. but no thanks I, yeah. I went out and played it for my friend James Stroud who cut it on clay and yeah uh, uh and uh, it's a nice one for us. Yeah. Again, again, your belief in the value of a song, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. yeah. helped it find its home. Yep. Yeah. You know, you're a guy that's had a lot of country music success, but you've lived in Los Angeles. You know, that's that's kind of a rare, a rare thing. You know, mm-hmm. you don't. There's not a lot of successful country writers who have not um, lived in Nashville. Um, but in 2008, Martina McBride had a top 10 hit with a song called Ride, which was the first hit written by your son, Andrew Dorf, who did uh, make his life and career in Nashville and, and would go on to write quite a few big country singles, um, including Somebody's Heartbreak for Hunter Hayes, Neon Light for Blake Shelton, Save It for a Rainy Day for Kenny Chesney, um, Yours If You Want It for Rascal Flatts. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't know Andrew personally, but we are the same age and knew a lot of the, the same people. And I was definitely shocked to hear of his passing in December of 2016. Um, and I know that you must have you know, been proud to see your son go in the family business, so mm-hmm. to speak, um, kind of follow in his dad's footsteps. Uh, tell us about when you first kind of recognized that like, oh, my, my son's got the bug. He's got the, he's got the talent for, for this thing. Yeah. Andrew was, is, um, just a brilliant, brilliant lyricist. That yeah. That's what he did. He wrote words. Um, I knew uh, from probably the age of fourteen. He would he would read books on poetry. Uh, he would write poems. Um, he uh, he would show me lyric ideas and say, "Hey, Dad, you want to write a melody to this for his sixteen year old girlfriend?" Which, <laughs> which was the first song we had ever written together. Wow. Um, 
he uh, just what a brilliant catalog, and um, uh, and I continue to um, to mine that as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, he's got some great things coming out. Hmm. This year he's got three on Old Dominion's new album, and oh. hopefully we'll have their next single. Yeah, uh, he's got uh, a Hunter Hayes thing coming out uh, the end of this year. Yeah, um, as well as a bunch of other really cool possibilities. Yeah, yeah. Um, you start your book. The first line of your book is the story of my life can be summed up in one extraordinary, ordinary evening at the Sheraton Universal's happy hour. And, uh, it's such a great story. I want to kind of end with that because I think it perfectly illustrates, uh, the life of a very successful behind the scenes songwriter. (laughs) Yeah. That's where the title of the book came from. Um, originally, you know, I had the idea, oh, I'll just call it Through the Years, a Life in Songwriting, and that was kind of boring. Everybody hmm. hated that. <laughs> and uh, I had had this first chapter where I tell this story that my friend and I were having a ha- having some margaritas at happy hour, and uh, this little bar band was uh, started playing one of my songs. And uh, so Buck, my friend, uh, yelled out, after they finished it, uh, to the singer, Hey, my buddy here wrote that. <laughs> and, uh, and they just said, really? Oh, well, how cool. Right. And they started doing another song and it was another song I'd written totally unrelated. <laughs> um, and so my friend at the end of that song raises his hand. And he says, Hey, my friend wrote that song too. <laughs> and they, and they gave him a, you're full of shit. Look. Yeah, yeah, totally. and, um, and then they played the Beatles, uh, Michelle, Next. Yeah. <laughs> and at the end of that song, he raises his hand. And he says, hey, my buddy wrote that song, too. And, of course, then they knew we were full of <laughs> Right, right. Um, but the, the fact is that, you know, everybody knows that Lennon and McCartney wrote Michelle. Yeah. Right. Nobody knows, really, who who the, the um, Oz behind the curtain, uh, <laughs> anonymous songwriters like me are mm-hmm. you know they you know they, because we're not the face of our songs right yeah. Kenny rogers barbara streisand george Strait, they're the face of this of my songs yeah um and so uh and that was the impetus behind writing the book to try and and from what i understand is the impetus behind your yeah for yeah. Sure. podcast you know to to bring awareness that there are people like me that right. write the soundtrack of other people's yeah. lives and nobody has any idea who we are <laughs> right. or how long right. it takes or what we go through to, right. to yep. make it happen. So yeah. I appreciate it. I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. Well, and all these stories and many more great stories. And I wrote that one too, your, your fantastic memoir. So Steve, thank you just for letting us thank come over guys. and hang out and, yeah, and hear these stories. Fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. 
We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. <laughs>